Welcome to Season 5 of Four Quarter Lives, a podcast exploring the profound impact of longer lives and careers on everything, countries, companies, couples, and careers. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and on this week's Four Quarter Lives, I talk with Anne Frank. Anne is the CEO of CMI, the Chartered Management Institute in the UK. We're going to delve into what the management and leadership competencies are that are required to navigate this new era of longevity, and the difference between Q2 and Q3 careers, and what that looks like for men and women. She herself is a role model of what many women leaders experience. She'll share why and how she pivoted towards purpose at 50, and how the organization she now leads is spreading the skill of navigating longer lives and careers. So welcome, Anne Frank, to Four Quarter Lives. Delighted to have you with us. Thank you, Aviva. I'm delighted to be here. It's a great topic. It is indeed. So the title of this episode is The Management Skill of Navigating Longer Careers. And I can't think of any better organization than CMI to actually give us an indication of where this stands. So maybe a little background and context first about what is CMI? When was it founded? What does it do? How has it grown over the last few years? And what was the issue at the heart of its mission? Thank you. Yeah, sure. It's a great question. So CMI stands for Chartered Management Institute. We are the professional body for leadership and management. Basically, what we're trying to do is take accidental managers and turn them into capable, competent, confident leaders. What's an accidental manager, you say? Well, most of us, when we're promoted into managerial roles, are promoted on the basis of our functional expertise. We're fabulous finance people or salespeople or IT people. So someone taps us on the shoulder and says, congratulations, you're now running the department. You're in charge of all the people and the money. They all report to you. Good luck with that. And they leave you to it. In fact, we know that 82% of people promoted into managerial positions receive absolutely no management training. And this is why CMI exists. We believe that great managers are made, not born, that these are skills that you can and indeed must learn. So the Chartered Management Institute is here to help people learn those skills. We've been around for 75 years. We were originally founded after World War II to raise British growth and productivity through improving management and leadership practices. It's still very much a challenge 75 years on as that stat, that 82% of accidental managers I shared with you illustrates. But we are making some progress. Our community has grown quite significantly. We're now over 200,000 people that are really interested in improving their management and leadership skills. And indeed, that is our mission. It's a never-ending mission, which is part of what makes it so enjoyable. And I would add that your relationship with your line manager, and there's lots of research on this, is the single most important determinant of your degree of engagement and your well-being and happiness at work. So being a good manager and having a good manager are critically important, no matter what sector you work in, no matter what your age, no matter what area of functionality you're in. 
I'm pretty staggered by your stat of 82% of managers get no management training in 2024 in a supposed era of lifelong learning. That's something I find incomprehensible. Absolutely. It's very surprising. And then we wonder why people aren't very good at it. And why we have such low engagement scores of employees if your manager can't manage. I absolutely, that is the number one most important person in most people's professional lives. So so CMI is as relevant as we think. I love that term of the accidental manager. I think that covers a multitude of sins. And I think you're the perfect person to lead this charge. So I want to turn now a little bit to your own story. You've managed a lot of things (laughs) and you managed a very interesting career transition when you moved into your own Q3. So tell us a little bit how you came to CMI and especially when and at what age? Sure. I was very fortunate to start my career with an organization that really believed in the power of good management and leadership and trained you from an early age. I started with Procter & Gamble and I spent a good 25, almost 30 years before I came to CMI in working for global corporations. And these were companies like P&G, like Mars, that really invested in growing managerial talent at every age and every stage and believed in lifelong learning. So you were constantly building on your management and leadership capability. So that really set me up well for this role. But by the time I reached my own Q3, I was in the C-suite of some FTSE 100 companies. And I would say that the glow of the corporate world started to dim a little bit. So I was turning 50. I was in my late 40s. I was in the C-suite. I was often the first and only woman in that role on the Exco. or It gets a little tiring over time to be always the first, doesn't it? And in those days, this was, you know, a few decades ago, it really was much more of an anomaly. And I also, like many people and many women entering Q3, wanted a bit more purpose. And so I did pivot. I did become somewhat disillusioned with my corporate roles and I wanted more purpose. I wanted more impact. I actually wanted an environment and a culture where I could actually be, feel more comfortable, more myself. And as do many women, I turned to the social enterprise sector to look for that purpose. I decided that, you know, I wanted a little bit more meaning and to do something different and to try and lead something that would have an impact for the greater good. And that's how I ended up being at CMI. So I do think that many women, when they reach their Q3, pivot. And I know that that's a lot of your work focuses in on that. And not all women are prepared for that pivot. And so it is very important, you know, that we do think about, well, as I get older, as I'm finishing the latter part of my corporate career and I've reached a certain level, whatever that level is, I need to be prepared that I may have another 25, 30, 35 years of working life. So what is it that I want to do? What do I want to change? How do I want to change? And I know that you're a big proponent of being prepared for that and pulling together that Q3 plan. And I'm a textbook example of somebody that did that. I was just reading some fascinating report that proves that people think much more deeply about their next phase when their age ends in a nine. 
So 29, 39, 49. And I'm always astonished when I meet, well, I'm not astonished anymore, but every time I meet a 49-year-old woman, I know I'm going to meet somebody who's in the throes of change and possible pivoting if they have the courage and the means. So congratulations. That sounds like it was a very successful move in your case. How have you enjoyed Q3? Yeah, I love it. I've been doing this over 10 years. Like I said, with CMI's mission, it's a problem we're never going to solve. That accidental manager issue, it's a global issue. And of course, helping people to become better managers and leaders has huge impact on them on the people they manage and lead, and ultimately on their organizations. We know that when you do this well, you make a big contribution. So it's been very rewarding to be able to help people through the thought leadership, through qualifications, through chartered manager, through other milestones that CMI does in our network of partnerships. Because as I said at the beginning, being a good manager and leader is one of the best and most important contributions you can do to improve your working life, no matter what your age. I'm just curious, like, what's the difference? Who have you maybe become from the high-powered, C-suite, professional woman of your late 40s to this now, I don't know, self-actualized woman (laughs) of her in Q3? Is there a shift? How would you express it? I think... I'm still fundamentally the same person, but I think I can be who I am more on my own terms and create what's really important about the CEO position is that when you're the chief executive, you set the values, you create the culture. And I'm extremely grateful for my working life, the decades that I had before coming to CMI, because it taught me so much about management and leadership. It taught me a huge amount about what good looks like. It also taught me a very large amount about what bad looks like. And of course, when you are creating the culture, which you do as the CEO, I was very cognizant of that. And it was very useful to me to be able to reflect and say, hmm, right. So in that experience, what that person did was really very good. I think I'm going to borrow from that. And yes, take that on board. And in that other experience, what that person did really wasn't good at all. So I'm going to avoid doing that. I was very fortunate to have this lifelong learning to take with me into this role and leverage in building CMI and in creating our culture and in helping to shape our work. I think that experience, and this gets to the experience of the older worker, is invaluable. I was able to bring that successfully to this role in such a way that actually made my doing of the role more authentic and ultimately, I think, more impactful. I love it. And I think it's really the potential of Q3 for everyone, but particularly for women, is to finally get a chance and a time to fix everything you didn't like and had experienced in Q2. I think you're a wonderful role model on that. So I want to switch now to some of the research that CMI has done on our favorite topic, ageism in the workplace. And you published a report last year called Age in the Workplace. So how would you summarize what's the current landscape for Q3 workers in the UK? Well, Q3 workers in the UK (laughs) face an uphill battle, right? 
because too many people like you, like me, are still full of energy and contribution, but their colleagues, often younger colleagues, overlook their talents and skills and experiences. And this is really what our research found. So our research found that actually only 42% of managers were open or somewhat open to hiring older workers, so people 50 years or more, whereas almost three-quarter of managers were very open to hiring workers that were, you know, 25 to 40. So they do face reluctance to be given new opportunities and new chances. They also face much less career development skills, so their career plans aren't as invested in by their current employers. Perhaps the learning opportunities could be overlooked. And of course, our research showed that really only 5% of organizations were proactively trying to recruit older workers to diversify their workforce. And of course, the irony here, Aviva, is that we're all getting older, right? There are more older workers now in the UK and in most developed economies than ever before. (laughs) So we have more people living longer, wanting to contribute, but their contributions are less welcomed. And that's a problem. That 5% figure, that's again, a pretty scary one, because as you say, the demographic pyramid in the UK is skewing much more generationally balanced than we've ever seen. And if such a small percentage of organizations are yet ready to proactively go after that talent, we have a lot of work on our shoulders. What's the perception gap between what companies say. I mean, there's more, I think, post-pandemic and in the media now. We see much more interest and noise about what they say they're doing in this space and what they're actually doing. Yes, and we call that the say-do gap. We did a piece of research, as you know, called the Everyone Economy, where we looked at six different protected characteristics of which age was one. We looked at ethnicity. We looked at gender. We looked at socioeconomic background. We looked at a number of different factors. And what was interesting is companies claim and managers claim and websites claim that, of course, they're all doing something about this, right? Of course, my organization is very inclusive when it comes to age or sexuality or gender or ethnicity. And of course, we have loads of opportunities for those people. And when we asked managers that, between 80 and 95% said yes, we're very inclusive. But then you ask them, okay, concretely, name me a program that you're aware of or you're involved in that's aimed at making it a more equitable place for that group. And that's when the percentage drops from 80 to 95. Suddenly you're looking at 40% or 25%. And that's what we call the say-do gap. And it was biggest on age. So almost 90% of companies and managers that we asked said, yes, we're inclusive when it comes to older workers. And when we said, name a program, only 5% could name a program. And that goes back to that stat that we're not trying hard enough to diversify our workforce by including and deliberately harnessing the talents of older workers. And we're missing out. And that number sounds... Absolutely right. And reflects certainly my experience in trying to interview companies that are doing something strategic around age. 
it's really hard to find. So I am not surprised by your say do gap. Just once again, appalled. I mean, we keep hearing a number of 5%. So we're going to have to do something about increasing that number. So the ones that are doing something, what are they doing? And are they even aware of this whole issue of this new demographic reality that's fast emerging in this country and others? Well, that's a very interesting question because there's certainly been a lot of press around it coming out of COVID. There was a lot. We had labor shortages, right? And people leaving the workforce. We had the chancellor and others calling for people to come back into the workforce, in particular, the older workers. But then if you're going to make that call, you have to make it an attractive and easier proposition for them to come back into work or pivot their skills. So what are the things you can do? Well, the interesting thing is what the older worker is looking for is not that different from, ironically, what the Gen Z worker is looking for. So very <laughs> high up on the list as uh, flexibility, yeah. right, around their work life. There's agency to shape that working life, whether that's part-time work, whether that's hybrid working. It's a greater say over when and how and where you work. That's very much in common with Gen Z, the young generation, and women, women, and women of course, very <laughs> from, from the last 30 years of us trying to push this flexibility agenda. It's nice to know that the Gen Zs and the 50 plus are now joining us. Absolutely. And so that's a big thing that was very high up on the list. Also very high up on the list is well-being. So what are you doing to promote well-being amongst your workforce? And is that something that can be discussed or is acknowledged or is it something that's swept under the rug and not cared about? And very tangential to that is culture. Is the culture welcoming or does the older worker feel discriminated against, like they're being dismissed, like they're being devalued? When we feel that our talents are overlooked, when we don't feel valued or respected, we don't want to contribute and we do not give our best selves. And so that was a very important factor as well. And finally, just those reskilling and upskilling programs. So making sure that people were comfortable with, for example, using the technologies and the more modern ways of working and helping people to make sure that they were able to do that while still contributing their experience. And that is something, and I know you're a big proponent of this, that actually multi-generational workforces do particularly well. You know, if you have a mentoring situation where a young person, a Gen Z person, for example, helps an older worker to master more agile digital communication, well, that older worker can help that younger worker master some of the politics and bumps in the road that happen in modern workplaces. So it is very win-win to have these multi-generational workforces. But again, we have to make our workplaces more attractive and inclusive of older workers, especially, I would say, women, because it is older women that often get the most discounted and dismissed. There is that as men age, they become, they're wiser, they're the experienced silver-haired guru that has multiple decades of experience. And And we become the crones. (laughs) Exactly. Older women, by contrast, are often dismissed as, you know, exactly the old crony or that old hag or whatever. There are assumptions made 
this isn't right and we're really losing out on talent. And I've been seeing some a growing pile of research on the brain drain of these 50 plus women leaving corporations like you did, Anne, because they're still not adapting to them, which is a crazy loss of talent for women in Q3 who have the time and the energy, finally, to give it their all. It's an astonishing mismatch. Some of this requires kind of new and courageous conversations that actually ask people at this age and stage, what do they want out of their careers? The government was pushing midlife MOTs for a time. Have you heard that spread? Did you check how many organizations are looking into introducing them? Well, yes, there's a very low awareness still of those midlife MOTs. And again, under 20% of organizations offering them, under 20% of people aware of them. So it's a very low awareness in terms of the offer and in terms of the practice. So again, that's something that will help because it's like anything so often when we have issues of people not feeling included, it's because their line manager does not sit them down and have a proper career discussion and ask them, well, what are your career expectations? How can I support those expectations? How could I help you to be more effective? What would you like to achieve in the next couple of years in your career? And if we were simply to ask those questions at any age, but also of our older workers, it would be so much better. And what the MOT does, it's a more formalized way of checking in with people to see, well, how are you thinking, feeling, how can we help you? And that's a good thing. But as I say, the awareness and the practice is still far too low. And so that's another thing that organizations can do. And another point is take a look at your communication. If all of your screen grabs on your website and all of your social media is featuring people that are clearly five to fifty. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or even, you know, 25 to 40, right? Or yeah. young people or people that are obviously a lot younger then older workers will look at that and say, oh, well, clearly not for me. I'm not in this group. It doesn't look like me. We can't be what we can't see. And if you're not representing older workers in your communications, and if you're not profiling them in your employee comms, comms, it's going to be much more difficult to attract them. So managers listening, have you sat down with your teams for a midlife MOT? I want to turn now to what exactly would be the management skill that needs to be introduced so that managers are longevity ready, aside from the ability to ask a few simple questions that you would think would be kind of obvious, but maybe not to the accidental manager. Your data, again, is showing a bit the size of the challenge. So do you want to share with us just how open they are to hiring people this age? And how do we build awareness among managers that this is actually an experienced and talented group Mm. and that their prejudices might be getting in the way of their hiring capabilities? Yeah, well, I do think that, as I said, the research that we did showed that just four in 10 were open to hiring people between the ages of 50 and 64. When it came to over 65, only 18%, so less than one in five were open to that. And yet 
people were much more open. Almost three quarters were open to hiring people 25 to 40. So it's really about missing out on talent. So what skills do people need? Well, you do need to be able to ask the right questions, listen carefully to the answers, and also to know what the strengths of your team are and to make full use of those strengths and to have them complement your own. I think this is very important. So one of the the biggest enemies of inclusion is the mini-me syndrome, right? Or, you know, the mini-me syndrome is also aka groupthink. I want everybody around my table to look and act like me. And agree with me. Yeah. Yeah, this is the worst thing we can do as a manager or leader because diversity delivers better results. And so what you do need to do, the skill that you need to have at every age and stage of your management and leadership career, know your own strengths and build a team that has complementary strengths to your own, that has different characteristics to you, because you will make better decisions. And of course, having built a more diverse team, leverage their strengths and listen to their suggestions. That doesn't mean that you are going to run a democracy. You're still the leader or manager. You still have to take the decision. But if you engage people in that decision, if you ask them what they think, and if you have diversity of thought, then when it comes to taking the decision, you're going to take a better decision. And then when you communicate why you've taken that decision, people will feel heard, engaged, listened to. And I think that this is a very important skill and we do not do enough of it. And what often happens in organizations is people do not make time for this kind of management and leadership, managing and leading other people in a proactive, clearly communicated two-way manner takes time. So my other tip is make time for it. Put time in your diary for those one-to-one conversations. Put time in your diary for those team check-ins and asking people how they feel about certain issues or projects. Too often we just get all bogged down in our tasks and we forget about the people part and managing and leading well is all about the people part. So I've spent decades educating managers about gender differences in order to help integrate women into the workplace. Do you think we're going to have to do the same sort of round with trying to introduce people to the data and business case of generational balance to get young managers and old managers, but especially young managers who are often the hiring manager now, to see the talent that is under their nose that they really don't necessarily recognize and may not have the lens to judge accurately. What is true is I think managers, middle managers that are middle-aged, <laughs> so you're mid-Q2. Middling everything, yeah. Yeah, so let's take your Q2 manager, let's take that 32 to 42, right? That sort of, right, I've made it, I'm in upper middle management, I'm about to break through into senior leadership, I'm doing a lot of hiring here. Those people need to do two things. They need to be more open-minded, more inclusive of people much older than them. So this Q3, age 50 plus, and younger than them, the Gen Z. Because I think on both sides of that generational spectrum, the very young and the, the older worker, 
there are a lot of assumptions made. There are a lot of stereotypes used. And that does a great disservice to both the younger group of talent, the Gen Z group of talent, and the older group of talent. Both of those groups have huge contributions to make. And again, I go back to my reverse mentoring or mentoring suggestion. If you're one of those hiring managers, pair these people up. Pair a young Gen Z with a 50 plus because they'll help each other. And that's really what you should be doing in building a diverse team. So I'm curious how you would position or how you would recommend companies position the topic of longevity and this new demographics. Should it be added to the already sizable and high piled DEI agenda or is it really much bigger and should be a strategic priority that gets first place on the leadership agenda so that companies can decide just how much resourcing they want to allot to it and how much impact it'll have on both their customers and their employees? Well, I think it's a bit of both. I think all of the inclusion agenda is still very important and we have much progress to make when it comes to all of those characteristics, including women, right? We've made some, but nowhere near enough. And the rate of change is slowed and the rate of progress is slowed. You know, but I think the age aspect is a newer aspect. Yeah. And so I do think that it's underrepresented in the data we have, and that it needs to be corrected. And of course, I think what is also very true is if you look at the demographic trends, right, they do support greater inclusion of the older worker. And of course, that is also true when it comes to making important decisions. If you, for example, take older women, I recall, actually, I think it was the CEO of the largest bank saying that actually older women, these Q3 women, are making 80% of the financial purchasing decisions. They're making huge amounts of major decisions about what to do with their money, where to invest their money. If you're a banker, you better pay attention to that demographic because they're a hugely important customer base. And the same is true for other major purchasing decisions. So I think employers and customer-facing businesses from every sector would be well advised to listen to these people. And again, I go back to having active representation of them in your own workforce so that they can relate to your workforce, whether you're selling insurance, whether you're retirement products or cars or homes, right? Because people do want to see people that look like themselves when they're talking with people. Yeah. So not only the talent dimension, but the customer dimension of longevity is increasingly going to be top of the agenda. Now, I know, Anne, that you wrote a book about gender in the workplace and gender balancing the workplace. I'm curious if we can explore the overlaps of these two topics of longevity and gender. And do you see any difference between Q3 for women and men in their experience of it, in their motivations they have during it, and for how companies might want to engage differently with these populations at this time? Well, I do. We touched on this at the beginning. You know, as men age and go into their 50s, they're considered sage and wise and experienced and that silver-haired, wise 
man is the go-to and we must listen to their wonderful words of wisdom. Whereas the women are often dismissed as past their sell-by date. A lot of women face redundancy when they enter Q3. I've had countless examples, whether it's media companies or banks, where those Q3 women are disproportionately represented in downsizing initiatives compared to men. This is a real tragedy because it's a double whammy, of course. It sets women back and it sets age back. And yet these women often go on to found their own things or they pivot and they go into the third sector. You and I both know many who've done that. And there's a real resonance with other women who say, ah, I felt that I was cast aside and on the forgotten about heap yet I have so much to offer and I would like to have a renewed purpose and I have a lot of energy and a lot to give. Little wonder that Q3 women are often the ones that do go on to found new things or go into a different sector. And it's a shame that they leave the corporations because it sets women back in leadership positions and it also sets age back. So it's a bit of a double whammy. And women do face more discrimination than men when they go into their Q3. Yet, as you have pointed out brilliantly in your latest piece, 80% of the Forbes list of the most accomplished women, they're Q3 women, right? So these women are doing fabulous things. We just need to respect that and hold them up as role models and say, look at the power that they represent and let's acknowledge that no matter what kind of employer you are, and celebrate it and see some more of it. Absolutely. And we're faced, of course, with leadership teams that are relatively gray-haired, but tend to be a bit male-dominated still. Uh And so we have this image of older men in power and women leaving the corporation to go and find some place where they can thrive. And the other thing I would say, and, you know, we've seen some examples of this very recently, is that a lot of women leaders, top leaders, that you talk about, they talk about the glass cliff or the poison chalice, where the woman is giving the much more difficult task of turning around an organization, right? Because she will take on that challenge. And then when something goes wrong, it's often the woman is on the receiving end of a disproportionate amount of opprobrium. and judgment and condemnation. And a woman also will be very often much more likely to make a values-based decision of, well, I got that wrong. Of course, I'm going to step down. Of course, I'm going to, you know, apologize. Of course, I'm going to admit my mistake. And many men also in very prominent leadership positions, when confronted with the same transgressions, dig their heels in and say, nope, you're going to have to carry me out of here in a box. I'm not naming some examples, but we all know in the press examples where women have graciously stepped back and said, yep, I agree. I made a mistake, not in line with my values, faced huge pressure and condemnation, men committing equally if not worse, transgressions have dug their heels in and saying, no, I'm going to stay. No, I will not step down. So in our discussions, and this is where I'm very curious, you said that managers have more choice than they know in shaping corporate culture and their reaction to the kinds of events that you just said. What did you mean by that? So I think it goes back to my first point that your relationship with your line manager is the single most important determinant of your engagement at work and your well-being at work. 
So if we know that, then if you accept that culture is how we behave towards our colleagues and towards our teams and towards each other, we accept that that matters a lot. And there is one thing that we can all control, Aviva, and that's our behavior, right? So I might not be able to set the strategy if I'm not the CEO, fine, or if I'm not on that leadership team, okay. But what I can absolutely do is I can control how I behave toward my team, toward my colleagues, and I can look at the composition of that team and colleague, and I can ensure that I'm really equitable in how I approach opportunities. I make time for people. I listen to their views. I make them feel valued. I praise them. That is within our gift. And you, when you are doing these things, are creating culture in a positive way. And you, as a line manager, if you're not doing these things, if you're giving people short shrift, if you're making derogatory remarks, if you're walking into your office, slamming the door and not communicating with anybody on a daily basis, if you're not checking in with your team, if you're insisting that they be ever present, whether or not they need to be present, if you're evaluating them on how they appear to you rather than their results, well, then you're actually creating a bad culture. So we as a manager and leader have a great deal of latitude and impact as to how we ourselves act. I love that idea that culture really is the sum of a whole bunch of individual behaviors that we can control, at least in our own case. So absolutely a very nice image. I can see a branding thing coming from that. And one concluding piece of advice to companies listening, what should they be thinking or doing right now on longevity? Just be aware of it, right? So I go back to, we have an aging demographic. That demographic is more and more important. It's important to your customers. It's important to all of your stakeholders. Take it seriously and make sure that you are leveraging the full spectrum of talent also from those Q3 workers of both sexes, those Q3 managers and leaders of both sexes value the experience and value their contributions. And to the individual manager? How are you behaving? What are you doing today to create a better culture where you manage and lead for everybody, whether they're a 55-year-old woman or a 23-year-old man? Doesn't matter. What are you doing to make that person give your team, your organization their best? because you can have a huge influence and impact on it. Fantastic. And thank you so much for this conversation. We will leave all the relevant links. If you're struggling to answer those last two questions, we'll redirect you to the CMI website where you can find the Age in the Workplace report and a whole list of courses that you might want to consider so that you will never be accused of being an accidental manager. And thanks so much. Thank you, Aviva. It's ever great to see you. Thanks for the invitation. My (laughs) pleasure. Until next time. For more thinking about the impact of our four quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better.